Welcome to Policy Punchline, where we invite scholars, policymakers, business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao, Princeton undergraduate class of 2021 and the director of outreach at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. Our world today has many problems. America is getting more polarized both politically and economically. Huge tech platforms are gaining control over an unprecedented amount of data without much regulation. The story of liberalism is losing its appeal to populism and autocracy in more and more parts of the world. How should we respond to those urgent and complex problems? To discuss some of those issues and bring forth his new ideas and solutions, we have the distinct pleasure to welcome Professor Glenn Wow to our studio today. Professor Wow graduated from Princeton in 2007 as the valedictorian of his undergraduate class, and he received his PhD degree in economics at Princeton in the following year of 2008. He's now a principal researcher at Microsoft and the founder of the Radical Exchange Movement. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Weil. My pleasure. You are currently teaching a class at Princeton called Radical Markets, where you explore many of the ideas in your book, Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. Kenneth Rogoff, the former chief economist at the IMF and now professor at Harvard, says that this book is perhaps the most ambitious attempt to rethink democracy and markets since Milton Friedman. It's truly a fascinating read, and and I'm still trying to get through it. And just to give our listener a bit of a context, um, you propose that by replacing capitalism, democracy, and borders with creative forms of auctions, we can eliminate most inequality, restore robust economic growth, heal our politics, and create a truly just society. And some of the more specific proposals include, and please correct me if I'm not nuanced enough, a near complete ab abolishment of private property in favor of a system in which uh, property is perpetually being auctioned off. Um, you tax all property based on a self-assessed valuation. You then spread this tax equally as a social dividend among the people, thus giving every citizen a share of the national wealth. You replace the one-person, one-vote system with a system of quadratic voting, which allows people to weight their votes. Um, you also want to break up institutional investment firms and force tech platforms to pay users for their data. And these are just uh, some of the ideas you propose. Since many of our listeners didn't get a chance to sit in your lecture or read your book, would you mind giving us some for further descriptions of the ideas in your book and about your radical exchange movement? Yeah, well, let me just tell you a little bit about the general philosophy behind the book. Um, there's a usual distinction in our politics between those who favor markets and those who favor something like socialism or collective organization. And the book really argues that these are two sides of the same coin rather than opposite extremes. And that, in fact, the problems with our lack of competition and lack of truly free markets today are the reasons why we have so much inequality. And so that if we have truly free and competitive markets, we'll actually end up achieving the goals that the socialists want. But that to do that, we need to rethink our society in much more basic ways than people have previously admitted. Private property inherently creates monopoly. And only by breaking up that monopoly can we have both truly free markets and true equality. Um, 
one person, one vote is not a market system of collective decision-making. It's a system of collective decision-making based on rationing everyone equal amounts of influence, no matter how important the issues are to them. So instead, we should allow people to have more influence on the issues that matter most to them and less on the issues that matter less to them as they would in a market system of exchange. And in that way, we can make better decisions together and have a democracy that really reflects people's preferences. Um, we argue that the data that we create every day for Facebook and Google are the basis of training their machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms. So this whole rhetoric about machines and computers coming to take our jobs is wrong. It's really unpaid human labor that's replacing paid human labor. And only by organizing collectively to create data labor unions can we create a true market. So you see all of these ideas on the one hand are about markets and on the other hand about moving away from the extreme individualism. And the point is we can only truly have free and competitive markets if we have more uh, thoughtful collective organization. And just to dig a little bit deeper into your idea about market, you uh, wrote actually in a New York Times op-ed this year that it is tempting to blame impersonal market forces such as globalization, automation for widening inequality, but the true villain here is actually market power. Um, and then you then pointed to factors like institutional investors, corporate power over labor markets, um, monopolies formed by tech giants, some of the ideas we, you also mentioned um, just moments ago. How do you define this term market power and, and how has this term transformed itself in the past couple of decades and how is it really threatening our society? Would you mind talking well, about Well, if more? you read Adam Smith, uh, a hero to many libertarians and free market advocates, his primary concern in terms of taxation is not the power of the British government, but rather the power of the East India Company, which was a corporation at that time that imposed taxes on things like tea and stamps and so forth. So it's always been a primary concern of economists from the beginning of economics that private individuals can assemble with often complicity or uh, coordination with governments enormous amounts of economic power. And that economic power can be the basis of taxes that are just like the taxes imposed by governments. Um, you know, in the state of Pennsylvania, rather than taxing liquor, they have a liquor monopoly. And the liquor monopoly raises the prices and takes the difference as tax revenue. And companies can do that, except not give the money to the government, but give the money to their wealthy shareholders. And so the, the real question of whether we should be more worried about corporate power or government power is a quantitative question. It's a question of how much taxes are being taken by the government and how much taxes are being taken by the corporations. And there's increasing evidence that we've seen enormous growth in the taxes being taken by corporations, whereas the taxes taken by government have been more or less steady or falling a little bit. And so this means that we need to be incredibly vigilant about this growth of the market power tax on our economy. And just to clarify this idea of market tax, we're saying companies raising 
their prices in. or lowering the wages to their workers right and below what they would be in a competitive market and you also mentioned that because the institutional investors hold common portfolios where, where they they really don't have an incentive to make uh, the the companies that they hold shares in to compete with each other and yeah I mean there, there's 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 a general theme here which is that people with power and wealth, will always try to find ways to create monopolies. It, this has been happening from prehistory. Um, the goal of democracy and social policy is to stop that from happening. That's been the goal of liberalism since it started. And the problem is that people will always be creative. They'll always find new ways. And so we need to constantly be innovating in the ways in which we try to stop that. So some of the new ways in which market power has been asserting itself recently has been as unions decline and as employers become more concentrated, the power that employers have over workers has grown and there's been no unions to offset that. So that's a big problem. Another problem is that there are institutional investors, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, that control much of the corporate economy. They're you know, four of the five largest investors in almost every major company and they have no interest in seeing these companies compete with each other for workers for consumers or in the political process um, and antitrust policy could address that uh, it could address the labor market issue and we've seen a growth of huge tech platforms that you know eat up a couple of hours or three hours or four hours of the time of an average person on this planet um, I don't know that we've ever seen so much power concentrated in so few hands. So we need to be constantly alert to these enormous concentrations of power and do things that we can to offset them. And just seeing so many forms of monopolization by whether it's tech uh, or companies in other fields, what do you think we should do from a regulatory and policy perspective? What's the radical change that should be happening well, uh, for each of these issues, there's a different prescription, all of which are relatively simple fundamental ideas, but would basically change our social infrastructure. In the case of institutional investors, we argue that if you're going to be a large inst institutional investor and own big stakes in companies, you shouldn't be able to diversify across an industry. You should have to own one airline, not all of them, one pharmacy, not all of them, one tech company, not all of them. Um, or you should have to be much smaller and break yourself up so you don't have so much power. In the case of uh, labor markets, you know we have merger analysis all the time. When companies merge, they have to show that they're not reducing competition for consumers, but they don't worry about what it does to the workers and the competition for employing them. We need to shift the focus of that. And uh, we need to, when a company like Facebook or Google or Microsoft wants to buy a young startup that might compete with them, we need to analyze that to think about what are the potentials of that company to disrupt the incumbent that is buying them rather than just whether they're currently competing with them. And besides what uh, the regulators and the government could do, uh, what about from innovators and just the common people? Because you mentioned in an interview with Wired that blockchain technology is actually an example of the interplay between social and technological change. So do you think people should have more innovations like blockchain that, that could potentially disrupt the existing status quo? And Yeah, ultimately, all power derives from people's views about what's legitimate or not. 
And the blockchain movement, you could call a technological entrepreneurial movement. You could also call it a social movement. You could also call it a political movement. It's some mixture of these things. And it's questioning fundamental features of what leads to legitimacy in our current society. Many of the people in the blockchain movement have embraced ideas from the book. In fact, at the largest blockchain convention or the most prominent one in the world, DevCon, they actually sang a song about the book, uh, the 3,000 people that were there at the opening of the um, convention. And I think that spaces like that, social spaces, that give us the potential of reconceptualizing our notions of legitimacy are crit critically important. Wonderful. You mentioned also in your interview with Wired that by the age of 18, you had conflicting ideologies of socialism and Irandian libertarianism, but studying economics allowed you to reconcile those ideas. And that experience taught you that ideas in your book, Radical Markets, will only take root if people reconcile different approaches. Uh, you would need technocrats, activists, entrepreneurs, artists, designers, and people from all backgrounds to all work together on it to actually make it happen. But do you see this happening in our world today, given our current political and social environment? And what would be your take on the political polarization that we're seeing in our society? Well, I see it happening every day. You know, Radical Markets has gotten equal amounts of support from uh, anarchist socialists uh, and libertarian charter city activists and centrist technocrats. It has, um, uh, we've created this thing, the Radical Exchange Foundation, which has a board that is a post-colonial historian, um, a wonderful artist, the chairwoman of the this blockchain conference I was telling you about, and uh, an economics PhD charter city activist. Um, so that just starts to give you a sense of the range of people who are involved and who are working actively together. And there are about three dozen clubs that have started up all around the world combining people like this who are collaborating to imagine and create a world like this. So you would say that it's, it's about having brilliant ideas that attract people and bring people together. And Well, I think that if we really take the great, the deepest insights of economics seriously, they connect up with the insights of sociologists and of philosophers. The conflicts between these come from being conservative rather than taking the ideas seriously. You know, antitrust policy has ignored labor markets, and that's made it look like standard economics is very much in contrast with more Marxist ideas. But once you really take seriously the things we write as economists about monopsony, then it it reconciles with a lot of the ideas that Marxists have been talking about for a long time. So I think by actually really taking these ideas seriously, really going into depth about them, right. really working out their uh, implications, we can connect people right. uh, rather than just compromising. It is totally a fascinating read for me, and, and I think the more I read your book, the, the longer time I spend with it, the more fascinating I find it. But um, I wanted to ask you, do you think our world is, is ready for the system? And by, by that, I mean, many people probably have a hard time deciding how much money to spend on each grocery item when they go, go shopping. How, you know, would it be a little bit idealistic to think that now they can figure out the amount of weighting they're going to devote to each vote or uh, what data to provide to tech giants and stuff? Because I, I, we always hear this argument and they're saying, 
oh, this country cannot be democratized or this country cannot um, have a certain political system or ideological system happening because the people are not educated enough or because the, the country is not modernized enough, not rich enough. How, how, do, how, do you do, how do you think of this? Well, there's many things in, in what you say. I mean, first of all, I don't think that the systems we describe in the book are actually more taxing on people's abilities than many of the current systems we have. One person, one vote requires people to put one vote on every issue, many of which they know or care nothing about. I recently voted in elections in Hoboken, New Jersey, where I live, and I didn't even know who was running for most of the offices there. So people end up having to vote on things that they're extremely ignorant about, whereas quadratic voting allows you to weigh in on the maybe narrow set of things that you're especially knowledgeable about and to vote less or not at all on the things that are less important to you. I think that actually gives you more flexibility and more ability to focus on the things that you care about, not taxing you more. But at the same time, every social institution comes with a set of social changes. And I don't believe in imposing any of these things by pressing a bottom button from the top down. Instead, I believe in them gen gradually spreading a sense of legitimacy throughout the population. And by doing so, changing how people think about what is reasonable social institutions. And so my hope is by the time that these things are implemented, they're extremely familiar. They're part of people's lives. What do you see as the potential obstacles in implementing a system like yours in our society today? Um, do you, th I mean, why do you think it might be hard for many to accept this system? Do you think it's a lot of times people's innate biases towards something different from the status quo? Or, um, well, I think people have come to a um, misleading idea that we can have technological innovation without social innovation, or that that's even meaningful. That technologies exist as technologies per se, rather than as social institutions. But of course, if I gave you the contents of Wikipedia and stuck you in the middle of a forest, you wouldn't be able to live much better than a caveman would. And it's really the social institutions and social infrastructure around you that allow you to be productive. And so people think that we can just allow technology to progress without changing the institutions that we have. And I think that's extremely misled. So you need to reclaim the spirit, which was true from the beginning of uh, industrialism, really, that you have to have social change to go along with technological change. You need to have voting rights to go along with industrialization. You need to have uh, end of child labor to go along with the telegraph, et cetera. So that's the spirit that we need to reclaim. Um, but I think many people are feeling that. I think that's why people are so upset about the current state of the world. And so I actually think that right now people are being led to populists, they're being divided. But if we can come up with a better vision, hopefully we can unite people and help them to find a better way to harness social change, to cushion and improve upon what technology offers us. One key factor in bringing people together, I guess, is the people themselves. And yeah. you propose quite a different uh, system for immigration in your book. Would yeah. you mind telling us a little bit about that? So in Canada, many migrants are sponsored by individuals, either to come work for their families or as refugees. And the communities take responsibility for these individuals. And if things don't go well for them, they commit a crime, the community has to pay for that. And having that more decentralized system for migration 
I think has a lot of benefits. It both reduces the amount to which the nation state per se is the filter. And in our system, the migrants would be allowed to make payments to the community or to the individuals who sponsor them that would directly benefit them. And given how much migrants benefit from coming to a country like the United States or Europe, uh, many of them would be willing to do that. In fact, many of them send 75% of their earnings home to their families anyway, and they could take a chunk of that and pay that as a sponsorship payment. And uh, in the process, you would establish much tighter social connections between communities and the migrants who live within them, and a mutually beneficial economic relationship that would uh, add to both sides. Because I think you mentioned in your book that ever since globalization or industrialization, nearly all forms of goods have been able to um, communicate between borders freely. Well, there's been ups and downs in that, but certainly in the recent period. But not human capital, you mentioned that. And and that's why you... Well, it's actually interesting because immigration was mostly free until the 1920s. And good goods movement was largely restricted until the end of that period. And then we freed up the markets for goods, but we clamped down on people. So there was a big change there. Got you. Do you think there's something innate and inherent uh, about our society or about humanity in general that prevent people from really achieving this sense of unity or, or acceptance? Or, or Because we always say, oh, humans have tribalistic instincts. People want to Group together, and you know the Homo sapiens are the only ones that really divide each other up by skin colors and hate each other because of that. Whereas you don't see that for uh, leopards and tigers. Well, I think that we need to have ways to form groups, and no other civilization except for maybe bees, and they just do it by colonies, has the same ability to form these. Uh, larger social units. So that's very important. That's how human civilization can exist. However, um, if those identities become too rigid or ill-adapted to what people actually want or aren't able to evolve, that's when they become a problem. And what uh, radical markets and radical exchange and liberal radicalism, which is something I worked on with Zoe Hitzig and Vitalik Buterin afterwards, is um, an attempt to allow a much more fluid, dynamic, market-driven process for recreating uh, groups rather than making them fixed or hierarchical. You've obviously faced criticisms, and uh, there must be an obvious tendency for people to misunderstand what you truly mean or label your theory in not-so-nuanced terms like communism or uh, neoliberalism. How do you feel about those criticisms? How would you respond to those who say that your system of thoughts is completely unrealistic? Well, I I think, um, first of all, the fact that it's simultaneously being called communism and neoliberalism, I think, (laughs) is actually a quite salutary thing. Um, I I think it shows the ways in which it incorporates aspects of many different ideas. In terms of whether it's impractical or not, I would point people to... Um, the huge number of experiments that are already ongoing with these ideas, the billions of dollars that have been invested around them. I don't think any book that I know of has had so much investment around it so quickly as this book has. 
Um, now, does it have an idealistic vision that's longer term? Absolutely. But I think that every uh, successful startup has had that. You think about Amazon. Amazon had the vision of being the everything store, and that's what allowed it to be the bookstore in the near right. term, right? And so I think people who think that um, being pragmatic and technocratic is practical and being idealistic and visionary is impractical haven't studied the history of politics. I agree. I very much agree with what you just said. Um, despite all the persisting problems in our world today, like we talked about in political polarization, a rising threat to liberal democracy, I mean, we also see technological innovations and great moments when the bright side and strength of humanity are fully exhibited. Are you more, I guess, optimistic or pessimistic about the future of our society or about our human race? And just quickly add on to that, how critical of a state do you think our society is in right now? How desperately do we need those radical changes? I'm not optimistic or pessimistic. I'm agentistic. agentistic. I think that we can make the difference. I think if we get together collectively and if we are ready to take responsibility for our world, not assume technology will sort things out, not assume fatalistic things, but instead take responsibility and work to make that world better, I think that we can have a more hopeful period than we've ever had in human history. But I think that if we're fatalistic, if we're lazy, if we accept the oppression that private property and our capitalist system are today creating, we're going to end up with um, a return to the 1930s, but this time with nuclear weapons. And I think that's very frightening. So I think we desperately need these radical reforms in order to allow technology to continue to progress. Um, technology depends on social organization. Technology doesn't work on its own. Um, and so we need to be as bold in our thinking about social progress as we are in our thinking about technological advance. So our society is in quite a critical juncture and we're, um, we shouldn't just stick to one type of institution or ideology. We're relying on one type of people to make the change, but we ought to bring all sorts of people's and ideas together. That's Absolutely. Awesome. And, and since the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline, I really have to ask you at the end of our show, what's the punchline here? I mean, for policy, for our society's future, um, for the fascinating radical exchange movement that you started, what would be your punchline for, for today's show? I think that this movement is the movement to defend a liberal open society. We're being offered concentration of power by the ethno-nationalists like Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and Matteo Salvini. We're being offered concentration of power by the left, by Jeremy Corbyn, Matt Brunig, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Together, if we work together, we can instead create a future that's ever more decentralized with all ever more rich, diverse forms of overlapping organization. And everyone, everyone listening to this podcast has an important role to play in making that happen. And I hope people will get involved with the movement to, to make it work. Thank you so much for ending on such an optimistic note and for providing us with such um, a fascinating piece of work. Really appreciate you joining us in our studio today, Professor Wall. Yeah, thank you, Tiger. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud, and visit us on policypunchline.com or jrc.princeton.edu for more information. See you guys next time. 
You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.